0: It all started with a box of cereal. Well, that's not exactly the beginning, but when Brian Chesky and his roommates had maxed out their credit cards while starting up what would become Airbnb, they had the crazy idea to continue funding the company by designing and selling limited edition cereal boxes during the 2008 presidential election and call them Obama O's and Captain McCain. That seems like a
1: million years ago but now it's 12 years later and Airbnb just made its initial public offering or IPO on the NASDAQ on Thursday, December 10th. What a ride it's been. In this interview, we speak with Airbnb co-founder and CEO Brian Chesky and learn how being a designer has influenced the arc of his journey, leading a company from a three-person startup to a public company. We talk about what it's like to design for trust during a pandemic and the power of having a clear company mission that all can align to.
0: If, like some of our colleagues, you're living in or working from an Airbnb right now, or if you've ever taken your family on a holiday made possible by them, we hope Brian's story will be especially inspirational. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. So Brian,
1: one thing that's really fascinating to us about Airbnb is the clarity of the vision to make anyone feel welcome wherever they are in the world. And there's a real value in having clarity of mission from the top in an organization that it allows teams to adapt on the fly and kind of point themselves towards the common beacon on the hill. For example, with the
2: Super Bowl ad that you ran, I think it was, was it last year? 2017, three years ago, right in the wake of the Trump travel ban, right when he became president.
1: Exactly. And you had this clear vision for the company and you had this space booked on the Super Bowl and the team changed direction with the commercial very quickly because they had that clarity of vision. Could you just talk about like how you establish vision, communicate vision, and then how that changes the way teams operate
2: together? That's a big question. It's a great question. Very few companies start with uh, like a mission statement. And usually the companies start for a reason. Usually the reason they start a company is more than just making money. Usually they're trying to solve a problem. Oftentimes entrepreneurs start a company, solve a problem they have in their own life. So Airbnb, my co-founder and I actually started it one weekend as a way to solve a problem we had, how to make our rent and we wanted to connect with people. Along the way, I think we realized we were addressing something bigger. And I think a company's kind of purpose is, I mean, said differently, there's many ways to describe it. One way to say it is, it's the reason people come into work every day, or it's the reason beyond a paycheck people come into work, or why they choose to come into that place to work. It's the thing that is most defining and different about you. Here's another way of saying your purpose. I sometimes like to ask entrepreneurs, why do you deserve to exist? The best kind of generic answer to that I've heard, I think, is because if I don't do it, no one else will. Because if the answer isn't that, the answer is, well, someone else would do it, but then we won't be the ones to re- be rewarded for it. And so there's a common exercise, like a way to also understand your purpose is to say, like, if you didn't, if your company ceased to exist, what would be deprived of the world? If your very best customers and evangelists and employees had to come to the eulogy for your company, what would they say at that eulogy? These are all ways to get around like the reason your company exists. It, by the way, it's sometimes different than the mission statement. Sometimes people have these kind of overly broad mission statements like our mission statements to unleash the world's humanity's potential to blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if that's not actually the reason people are coming to work, then just because you say it's your mission statement doesn't make it so. So this is kind of where it starts. And I think the bigger a company gets, the more important it is, because when a company's really small, the founders just do everything intuitively. It's almost like playing music without sheet music. You just know what to do. But once you have hundreds or thousands of people, you can't just presume they all intuitively know what to do. You have to be explicit, like you have to kind of write it down. And so this is what I think is really important. And I think that, importantly today, I think uh, consumers, customers, don't just want to buy something. They want to buy into something. And uh, I think they want to buy into ideas, buy into ideologies. I think companies are realizing they have a greater responsibility today than they used to, that their responsibility is and probably never quite was limited to shareholders, even to employees, but a company's responsibility is broadly to society. And I think a design-driven company, a company that values design or is even run with design as a core value or run by a person who has a background design, they realize that their primary motivation, like most designers, is that they want to actually solve problems. And they want to solve a problem in a holistic way. So, you want to make this thing, you want this thing to improve the condition of the world and further something. And so, I think that one of the really important things you need to do is write down exactly what your company stands for. Ask yourself how, you know, whether or not you can identify your your progress towards getting there. Ask yourself, Every time we sell something to a customer, are we honestly doing this or not? And this is a challenge we've had too. It's because, you know, the bigger your platform, the more risk, there is of divergence between what you say you you do and what you sell. And then I think it's really important that you have what I call like defining actions, actions that can grab attention from people to say, this is what we stand for. And you don't just merely do it for attention. But, you know, if you truly mean something, then you have to put something on the line. So for example, the Super Bowl ad. I'll just give you. I'll, I'll give you two or three examples of this. One example is a Super Bowl ad we did early 2017. You know, first of all, our mission is really around the idea that you can go, you, you can belong truly anywhere. You can go to any community, and you can belong in that community. You're not an outsider. You're an insider. Core to that is feeling accepted, and so we're really committed to this idea of belonging and to connection, connecting people together. So, core to belonging is people being able to come together and live together crossing borders all over the world. So we don't stand up against every political issue. Every time President Trump stands up and says something, I'm not in a position to feel like I have to respond to most things that he or other politicians say. We just can't can't comment on everything. But when something is in opposition to our vision and our mission, we have a really big platform We think it's important for us to speak out. And the reason it's important to speak out is, number one, we can potentially influence the discussion. We have a unique point of view with a lot of information. And we're also kind of representatives on behalf of millions of people that believe this thing. So one of those things is travel, an idea that you can cross a border and travel and live with communities. And so early 2017, President Trump instituted a travel ban, a travel ban seemed to us to be in opposition of what we stood for and these kinds of policies, you know, would have been huge obstacles to our mission. So the story goes the Super Bowl's coming up in a few weeks. We actually didn't have an ad and there was a slot, a 30 second slot available. And my CMO came up to me and said, There's a slot available. I don't remember exact cost of a 30 second slot, but it was a lot of money, like $4 million, something like that. And we had previously made a video based, uh, uh, like it was a longer video on about discrimination on Airbnb, where we basically said that no matter who you are, who you love, where you're from, what you worship, what your orientation is, you belong to Airbnb, and you have to accept one another. So we did this. Then we made a video and they did a cut down to 30 seconds. To say, you know, this could be a really trump disinstituted travel ban. And this is maybe now, you know, maybe it was a couple weeks. I don't know. It was a very compressed timeline. Most people, when they buy Super Bowl ads, they buy an ad slot, they don't quite know what they're gonna make, and then they hire an advertising agency and they have a multi-month or sometimes even longer process. We ended up buying this ad kind of last second. I remember waiting till the very final hour to decide whether or not we should even buy the ad. And it was one of the scarier things we ever did, because we thought, wow, we could actually, you know, after we made the decision, we thought, I I thought, oh, my God, wait, what did we just agree to? We might be inflaming, you know, kind of people and who knows what's going to happen. Anyway, we ended up running this ad, speaking out against the Trump travel ban, and kind of something expected happened, I suppose. A whole bunch of people who believed in it spoke out, in support of it. And a whole bunch of people who didn't believe it spoke out against it. And I got a lot of emails and tweets from people saying I'm never using their service again. And I thought to myself, well, that may have saved us all some trouble. Because now you know what we stand for and you know what we're about. And if you're not committed to this idea, then there may have been a problem, you know, maybe there would have been a conflict with us in the service anyway. And our business has always been a little more than just a utility. It always been more than a utility. You know, it's more of a community. Like our guests contribute to our platform. When you stay in an Airbnb, 70% of people leave a review. Very few people that are customers of the product contribute back to the product and make it better. But ours is a network, so the more guests use it, the more they contribute, the more they leave reviews, the better the product actually gets. So they are actually part of the product, so they have to kind of participate. So it's really important that, in our business, people buy into some very basic ideas. Another example of this, another defining action, was... When we saw in around a similar time, I think this is 2016, a hashtag was trending on Twitter. And the hashtag was hashtag Airbnb while black. The stories describe details of primarily African-American or black guests in the United States that were trying to book Airbnbs. And because both guests and hosts have profiles, they were describing examples of being discriminated against, that they weren't able to get housing and people were telling them The house wasn't available, but they were allowing others to stay. This was an existential risk to our business. If the company's committed to basically making sure people feel like they belong, the opposite of belonging or an obstacle to belonging is discrimination. So if you're truly committed to this idea, then you'll fight against obstacles towards it. That just seems completely obvious. And so we said, well, we have to take dramatic action. We can't do merely what is expected of us. In a crisis, I like to try to imagine what does the world expect of us and how do we exceed their expectations and do more? Because a crisis is also an opportunity for you to really tell the world what you stand for and make some defining actions. You often have permission to be bolder because there's this moment. And so we basically said we're going to require every single member of our community to actually signed this community compact saying that they will not they it was an honor code pledge they won't discriminate against other people. Well the crazy thing is since we enforced that and required every single person to sign it more than 1 million people have chosen not to sign it and they've been removed from the Airbnb platform. These are a million people that were probably not committed to our values. They would have interacted with communities and you know some of them might have not had an experience they would have liked or the people working with them wouldn't have because there were just like basic values that people couldn't agree to. So I think that a lot of purpose-driven or whatever you want to call it, being focused on your purpose means being really clear about it. It can't just be something on a plaque. It has to be something you practice. And you have to practice it through the small moments, but also through big defining actions. And I think doing that sends a signal to the company and to the world that you're truly committed toward this. And ideally what that does is it attracts more people to your platform that have the same kind of values. And it becomes a self-reinforcing kind of prophecy.
1: Brian, you talk about responsibility of a company to more than just shareholders, but uh, also to community and to one another to a certain degree as well, if this is the shared value system or vision that that unites the group. When you think about those decisions like, you know, that's a million Airbnb customers who are not part of the ecosystem. How do you think about the business impact there? Do you think about it like revenue lost or potentially revenue saved by not having to deal with support or
2: legal challenges? Well, this is why I think the roles of designers are really important, right? Because, and I'm not to bring it all back to design, but not everything is black and white. I think that uh, if I were to zoom up for a second, I think it's really important that you design the company that you're in. You don't just design the products that the company makes. And I think the design of a company and the way companies have been designed have almost oversimplified things. I think most CEOs feel like they have responsibility to more than one stakeholder. They feel like they have responsibility to stakeholders in addition to their shareholders. Most em- CEOs would say they feel responsibility to serve their employees as well. They feel responsible to serve the customers. If they don't serve the customers, they're not going to make any money And I think they'd also often say that they actually have a responsibility to society. Any CEO who doesn't find that they have responsibility to society is often reminded of it and not on their terms when there's basically uproars and backlashes and society pushes against it. I think that the modern company in the 21st century is a company where the CEOs kind of not only acknowledge but institutionalize that they serve multiple stakeholders. They don't just serve shareholders, they serve multiple stakeholders. And they are identify who those stakeholders are. They measure the impact that their products or their actions have on those stakeholders. And they're just designed with all stakeholders in mind. By the way, this I don't believe is bad for shareholders. In fact, my argument would be this is the best thing in the long run for shareholders because shareholders want it, are gonna wanna invest in a company that society wants to exist. And I think that maybe broadly, society has been kind of waking up, especially young consumers, saying they care about who the companies are and what they stand for, for whom they buy products from. And I think that as companies get bigger and the companies get more global, they start to recognize they have more responsibility. Or society and or politicians, regulators, look to them to take more responsibility. And so I think one of the most important things that a company has is a, their brand. But at the end of the day, mostly what their brand is, is a promise. Their brand is trust. And I think they have to retain trust with the public. And I think once you lose trust, it's really hard to get back. And the way to retain trust is for the society to feel like you're serving them and their needs, not just the company's own needs. And I think companies who do that are actually going to be rewarded. So you take like these million accounts that were removed. In the short run, there may have been a little bit of revenue hit, obviously, by some of these accounts. But in the long run, I would argue a company that takes action is probably a bigger and more financially successful company. Because those one million accounts would have probably been guests who would have had bad experiences because they would have had reviews that were out of the mainstream of our community. There could have been altercations. There could have been conflicts. Host could have felt like, I'm host or guest. It was actually a million people on both host and guest. People may not have wanted to continue to participate in our community because they feel like if I go to the Airbnb community, it feels unsafe. I feel like I'm going to be discriminated against. So not um, taking action would be penny-wise, pound-foolish. In the long run, I actually think what was best for society in this case was also best for shareholders. It's just the key is your time horizon. In the long run, I generally think serving all stakeholders And finding harmony between them is the very best thing in the long run for shareholders because that's what engenders the most amount of trust. That's what makes society root for companies. That's the kind of brand that people want to love and get in line and fall behind. But it means that the way you run your board meetings have to be different. You can't only discuss financial metrics. You can't only talk about like some stakeholders. You just have to have a wider view. This, I think, is the view of what a designer can do. They can look very holistically at systems. And I think this is the kind of new social contract that companies are going to have with society. They're just going to be more complicated. And again, it's because they're more global. They're bigger. They just happen to have more stakeholders. And they grow so quickly that if you don't measure the impact then suddenly the results can be very dangerous.
1: Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5.
0: Brian, you mentioned trust, and when we talked to John Maeda, who's a former president of your alma Matter at RISD, and yeah. he, he held up Airbnb as an example that designs really well for trust. And now you have this whole new obstacle to design around the, this pandemic.
2: How do you think about designing products for trust during a pandemic? With the pandemic, this was a very uniquely challenging one. There's kind of trust in their safety. And safety is like actual, and trust is perception. So, trust could be a combination of safety and perception. I'll give you an example. On the safety side, the first thing you have to do is actually consult experts, have a basic understanding of the science, and then institute protocols to be able to keep people safe and move very, very quickly. So, one of the things we did is we hired the former Surgeon General of the United States. Um, This is a person named Dr. Murphy. He was a Surgeon General under President Obama. And we worked with him to design an enhanced uh, cleaning protocol. And this is a cleaning protocol that the hosts could opt into. So they could basically go through this brief training, fill out a short quiz, and if they kind of passed it, they would get a badge. And they would go through this, and, and, then, and then we would give them the badge and their listing. We also instituted a minimum window between the time the guest checks out, the time the new guest checks in. So we established a handful of things around the hence cleaning protocol. The other thing is around trust, though. People, obviously, they also, you know, there's perceptions. And so part of this, sometimes you have to ask yourself, people sometimes may feel safe. They know a guest hasn't been there in three days even if it doesn't actually increase the risk after a certain amount of time. Do you do something based on perception or not? And we just generally chose to try to find a minimum threshold that we think aligns with the baseline that the health and safety professionals advise. And then we're just very transparent with the information and allow guests to make their choices based on the information we provide. But I do think that in this new world, what I would say about health and safety is we've learned a couple of things. The travel patterns since the outbreak began have changed. These are generalizations, but they're generally true. Guests generally are not getting on airplanes. They're generally not crossing border. And they're generally not going at the same rates to really big cities. And when they do, they are generally not going to tourist districts. And they don't want to be in crowded hotel lobbies and in elevators being exposed. Oh, and they're also not really traveling very much for business. They're doing business via mostly Zoom. What they are saying, though, is after months and months of being locked in their homes, those who have the means and the logistics to do it are deciding to get out of their house, get in a car, and drive about 200 miles, which is about a tank of gas, to... Mostly a home, often on Airbnb, where they aren't sharing space with guests. They don't have elevators. They don't have public spaces, ideally, with a host who's gone through the enhanced cleaning protocol. And they can have the space all to themselves and they can use that to connect with loved ones. And they're often doing it outside of cities, often in small towns, rural communities or small cities, a little more off the beaten path. And it's also an opportunity to connect not only with their loved ones, but to local communities and nature, which is, I think, kind of where we're seeing travel going right now. And we also think this is part of a whole new way people are traveling. I think there's two really big trends in travel right now that we're seeing. Trend number one is what I would call travel redistribution. Instead of people going to the same 20 cities, going to the same tourist districts, staying the same hotels, and going to the same landmarks, People are now choosing to go to many thousands of different cities. They're going to smaller communities around them. And so basically travel is being redistributed. The second trend is that the line between travel and living, I think, is going to start blurring. It used to be that the vast majority of people lived in one residence, they were tethered to a city, and if they travel, they either travel for business, which is a few nights at a time, their company usually paid for it, or they did their once or twice a year vacation. And this is obviously for people who can afford to do this. I think what's happening now is very few people want to travel for business, so that is kind of taken away as a primary market. It was a very small part of Airbnb. We were primarily leisure. But a lot of people are saying... You know, again, if they have the money, they kind of wouldn't mind living somewhere for a month or two at a time, especially now that schools are delayed and learning has been remote. And so people are saying, you know, I, I kind of want to live here for a month or there for a few months, or maybe I could even live here for an extended period of time and I can do my job there. And so I think this becomes even more important for us to design for, because now we have to design not just for you to be a visitor. We have designed for you to be able to live in the community. How do you quickly be able to book an Airbnb, go to a new city, and feel like you live there? And this becomes really important because now the host has to think through, how do I integrate this guest into the community? I basically have to give them a lot more information about where they're living and make sure there's a lot more amenities for them. So these are some of the things we're thinking about. So I think great design often has a point of view. It's looking at trends and data. It takes an entirely holistic system. It writes down its really key principles, and it takes action, ideally, very quickly.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about designing systems, because that's definitely something that's that's happening inside of Airbnb. In fact, the design system at Airbnb is well-known and well-respected. People like John Gold has done a lot of innovative stuff. Jennifer Ham, who's taken a unique approach to the illustration system at Airbnb that's very inclusive and that sets the stage so people recognize, like, this is the type of interaction I might have when I stay at an Airbnb. And then, of course, there's a new system that your teams have been designing, Project Lighthouse. Could you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Again, so a handful of years ago, there was this hashtag on Twitter, Airbnb Wall Black. It was brought to our attention. There was discrimination happening on our platform. So we did a series of initial actions. We required every community member to sign a community compact, committing they will not discriminate against each other. Again, though you think that bar is very low, about a million people didn't sign it and were removed from the platform. We actually hired Eric Holder. We were kind of, I think, one of the first companies to do that. And he worked with a woman named Laura Murphy, who was from the American Civil Liberties Union DC office, and they worked together on an initial report, and then Lauren Murphy has been working with us for, for over four years. And we also did things like we limited the exposure of a guest profile photo to a host to try to dial back certain signals that could be used for grounds for discrimination. So we've been trying a bunch of things like that. But we kind of felt like we were shooting a little bit in the dark. We were trying to estimate how much these small design changes were impacting discrimination on our platform. And after working this problem for a little bit of time, we realized something fundamental. It's hard to design for something if you can't measure your progress. And we, frankly, were not aware of how much discrimination was happening on the platform. It was only being made aware to us by people who complain, and we felt like not everyone discriminates, even complains. So how pervasive is this? And so we decided to try to measure this. Well, how do you measure discrimination? That can be pretty hard. We weren't going to ask people what race they were. So instead, what we did is we designed a system to measure discrimination based on perceived race. Now, important thing about discrimination is it's usually based on a perception of race because very few people ask somebody what their race is and then discriminates. They look at them or interact with them. They, based on a perception, make a judgment. So Perception-based systems are actually often the standard. But we wanted a system that people would be really transparent about, people would know when we're collecting information, people could opt out of it, and that we would be respected by major privacy groups. So we ended up working with Color of Change. They're the leading online civil rights organization on the Internet. We partnered very closely with them. But we also brought in a few privacy rights organizations. We wanted to make sure that we had partnered with civil rights groups and privacy organizations to design a system based on perceived race so that we could measure the amount of systemic discrimination on our platform. We felt like Project Lighthouse is really about putting light on a problem. If we put light on a problem, we could design for it. And the idea is that once we measure the amount of discrimination on the platform, we can basically discern based on perceived race whether certain people are having a more difficult time getting Airbnbs and what their difference is. We can do it systematically. We can actually see statistically the differences in people's experiences, not just anecdotes when they call customer service. Then we would use that to modify the design of our platform. And this is a very long-term project. It's pretty groundbreaking. There's not really any project like it of its kind. So this is what we're doing. And I am hoping The North Star here is the following. We are able to continue to improve the measurement of the systematic discrimination on our platform. Always assume if you have a community, people of choice, some people will discriminate. So you can't be naive. You have to assume this happens. We want the community on Airbnb to be a more conclusive community than the gates outside of Airbnb, significantly more. But we also want to use this data to improve better systems. And my hope is that whatever solutions we come up with, that we can open source so that, like, we learn best practices. Like, if you design your system, here are some design best practices based on empirical data that we have that reduce or eliminate bias and discrimination on a platform. So we don't want our solutions here to be proprietary. We think this is just, we're on the frontier. And so if we're on the frontier and we have to solve this problem, we may as well share the solution with others. And, of course, this assumes we actually make progress, which you know, the best way to make sure you make progress on something, or one of the best ways is to make a public commitment. And so we made a public commitment. We said, we're going to be reporting on our progress. And that was just also a way to hold ourselves accountable. If we know we're going to have to report on the progress, we feel like we have to make progress on it. This becomes a top priority for the company. Sometimes you can call it management by press release. Like you put out a press release and it just kind of holds yourself accountable because then it's very embarrassing to not make progress on it. Is anyone already
1: using it other than Airbnb?
2: No, not yet. Although the way we designed a system, even to collect the data, we think is a fairly innovative system to anonymize the data set to protect people's privacy. So we don't connect people's perceived race to their accounts. The way we did that to collect this data and keep this information more anonymous was pretty important. And so we think some of this design of this system that we worked a couple of years on with some leading privacy groups and obviously core of change, we would love to be able to share this with the companies that want to use it. Because again, this does not need to be proprietary to Airbnb. As we design solutions, which I think will take, I don't know how long it will take. Well, first we'll have to de- collect enough data. We'll have to get to significance of a data set. And then after time, then we design the system. And then if you show that the design works, then we would love to share it with others. You know, this would be over the coming years, though, probably years, not months. Brian, one
0: of the other challenges that people are facing right now, in the midst of uh, pandemic and, and everything else that's going on, is is kind of an epidemic of loneliness, and it's having this yeah. huge toll on on people's mental health. Uh, we're wondering how do you design products that maybe help address this problem of loneliness and people that are are suffering from that.
2: This is no doubt, one of the loneliest times in human history. As a species, we are, you know, a few hundred thousand years old, you know, homo sapiens. And for just about all of our existence, or all of our existence, we lived in tribes. Much of our existence, I, I guess, we lived in, we were hunter-gatherers living in tribes of between 100 and 150 people. I think this is the reason why, when there's, you know, the old saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, I think it's because it actually did used to take a village to raise a child. They didn't have a fire department and bootclash, blue shield and Amazon coming to your front door. Like you actually had to pull together all of your resources. And one of the reasons why I think loneliness hurts so much or being excluded or not being a part of something or not belonging hurts so much is because thousands of years ago, if you didn't belong, it would be basically a death sentence because you needed the tribe to provide everything for you. So I think there's a reason why people are so afraid of social humiliation or public speaking, and when people feel excluded, it hurts so much, and that's because it used to be like a death sentence for you. Well, I think the problem is, over time, the kind of tribes have begun to become disbanded, or the tribes have become digital, but the digital tribes haven't really, and the digital communities haven't really replaced all the needs we were getting from physical communities. And there's kind of a, a lot of books and literature about this, but pretty much in America, the average American has fewer close friends than they did in the 1950s. Fewer people they can confide in. There's fewer physical communities they're a part of, whether churches, neighborhood groups, bullying communities. There's there's a lot of things they're not a part of. As we've become less connected physically to our extended friends, our extended families, we have fewer people to confide in. That's been replaced with digital connections. The problem is the digital connections don't often nourish us in the same way the physical connections do. In other words, we still feel sometimes lonely. Now, I always thought about loneliness as something that what happened to me when i'm much much older and you know i'm so old that many of the people i love are no longer on this planet and i'm kind of one of the few people left of my age and you know i'm kind of old and i'm very lonely it turns out that loneliness is something that knows no age, no boundary, no border. Loneliness is unfortunately part of the human existence. In fact, they did, did a, I just saw it, a recent survey that said the loneliest Americans for the first time since they started conducting this survey are not senior citizens. They're kids under the age of 22. Think about that. Children or or teenagers or young adults, I guess 18-20 is an adult. Adults 18 to 22 are lonelier than senior citizens. And teenage girls are among the most lonely people in the United States, probably the single loneliest group. And this of course is a huge problem. When we're lonely, we're more likely to be addicted to things. When we're lonely, we're more likely to have depression. When we're lonely, we're more likely to be anxious. We're more likely to suffer obesity. And in fact, there was a study showing that when you're lonely, it's equivalent on your life expectancy as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Being lonely can cumulatively take about 15 years off your life because it's a precursor to all these other ailments, if that makes sense. And I think what we are all collectively feeling, most of us as a generalization during this pandemic, is some amount of loneliness. I think there's a huge number of people feeling this sense of dread, this sense they don't belong to something, they don't really have people they can confide in. And I think what that does is it might get you either a bad depression or a low-grade depression, it can make you very, very anxious. I think also when people are lonely, they tend to push people away. So then when you're lonely, it has got the self-reinforcing effect that you don't want to connect with other people. And also when you're lonely, you yearn to be part of a group. And so sometimes you can yearn to be part of like groups that aren't very helpful. Sometimes how do hate groups recruit people? Well, they recruit people because they're lonely, they're disconnected, and they or gangs, you become a part of something because you feel like you now belong to something. And sometimes they're not always, you know. obviously there's huge consequences. So there's a lot of division that occurs. So I think loneliness is basically this crisis of human connection. And I think we're living in not just a health crisis with the pandemic, but we're also living now in a crisis of human connection. And we have to design for it. How do we do it? We're in the process of trying to figure that out. Because, you know, this has become an elevated problem in the world. But one of the things we found is that connections come in either deep relationships or 10-second interactions. Connections are important when they have meaning. You know, somebody like knowing who you are, acknowledging you, looking you in the eye, knowing your profile, learning a little bit about you, doing something personal for you. So one of the things we're trying to do, for example, is get host to read the guest profile and leave them like a welcome note. The guest feels like they're not just an anonymous person in a space, like they're just checking to hotel and people don't know they're there. The host knows who they actually are. And then we'd like to get guests to leave, you know, on in a guest book or handwritten note to the host to acknowledge them and be able to like thank them. And their review system does that too. So we basically have a review system where guest review host, host review guest. They do it 70% of the time. And this, is it really a form of connection where both sides feel acknowledged, they feel connected, and we built a messaging system as well. So we're constantly thinking about these systems, but I think it's all about deep relationships all the way down to really light, 10-second interactions. And ideally, the best way to design for something is to deeply understand it, study it, and then you know think about your entire end-to-end system write up a customer journey and look at all the moments of interaction. So in our case, what are all the moments to be able to facilitate the sense of connection to the host, to the neighborhood you're in, to the passions you're connecting with?
1: You take a very interesting approach at Airbnb in how you organize your teams around the customer journey. Whereas most companies have teams organized by discipline, so that marketing, sales, etc., But at Airbnb, you've got host experience, guest experience, and, and various subdivisions within that. Can you talk a little bit about, was that a decision that you consciously made or other folks in the company made that decision? How does that shape the way that you design
2: your products? We've actually had a number of designs in the company. We've kind of gone from, in the early days, a function organization where we were designed around functions then to kind of a matrix, people in big companies probably worked in matrixes, then to a divisional and subdivisional structure. I've kind of tried in many different hats. Where we ended up is a, I guess what I call integrated structure. It is actually a little more functional. So almost everyone reports to me as a functional leader. But then we try to organize teams to look at service areas or customer journeys. What we found was if you're purely functional, you don't have any ownership of a stakeholder, then the stakeholders can get left behind. So one of the teams we created was a hosting team, a team that was totally dedicated to hosting and totally dedicated to our hosts. We hired this incredible leader named Catherine Powell from Disney. She managed probably like a large percent of the Disney theme park operation at Disney. And she manages the hosting organization. And one of the things they do is they look at the end-to-end journey of a host. We look at the kind of sign-up and enrollment process, the onboarding, and kind of look at the full life cycle. And she's doing a lot of really important work here. We do the same thing with the guest experience. So, you know, marketing would typically focus on what we call the consumer, the person who is not yet on Airbnb, like a future guest or somebody we want to kind of re-engage. And then we have a team that kind of spends time looking at the end-to-end journey once they get to Airbnb. And I think where we want to get to is really feeling like each stakeholder is being acknowledged and designed for, and there's teams dedicated towards that. So employees, I think most people have a team doing this, and they call that HR. We actually named our HR department Employee Experience because we wanted to think about designing an experience for the employees so they could learn, they could grow, and it was a really engaging experience. We created this kind of internal culture team that really designs a lot of programs for the employees. Because one of our theories is that if we're designed for connection and community, we need to have it inside the building. That whatever we want outside the building has to first start inside the building. And so we do that. We have people looking at the guest experience. We have people looking at the host experience. We have people looking at the investor experience. I mean, that's basically the finance team, primarily, investor relations. And then we have teams mostly in public policy And elsewhere they're looking at the experience of communities on our platform and what their needs are. And I think the key is that you have people thinking about each stakeholder and then you have organizational design where you can essentially make trade-offs or design with all of them in mind. And so I think that's pretty important. Brian, one last question to wrap things up.
0: It seems like your company has a strong connection to Disney. You mentioned the Disney leader you hired. You've used Pixar artists to create storyboards for your customer journeys. What's that kind of core fascination with Disney, and and how has it been helping you in in the journey for Airbnb?
2: So I wrote this thing about our culture and the design, and I think this might start to answer it. Here's what I wrote. I I wanted to write about our culture. So I wrote, the most defining part of our employees is our culture. Our culture is one of the main ingredients that attract people to work at Airbnb, and it is a key ingredient to our success. Airbnb was born with a creative spirit much like the design school environment at the Rhode Island School of Design, where Brian and Joe went to school together. Like at design school, they envisioned a close-knit community that accepted people in all of their eccentricities and allowed them to be themselves, inspiring them to do their best, most creative work. But Airbnb is not just a creative culture. We sit at the intersection of art and science, a commitment that started when Nate, an engineer, joined Brian and Joe. It is this marriage of the art and science Of the scientific method with a creative process that produces work that can capture people's imaginations. So to answer the question, I think one of the things that's core about Airbnb is that we really are the marriage, I think, of art and science that started from the very beginning with Joe Nate and I. And I think that in Silicon Valley, a lot of companies are very focused on technology and science, not as often. Will the creative process be equal? And then you have kind of design companies where maybe there's all that design, but they may or may not fully leverage technology. What people don't realize about Disney is that especially when Walt was running the company, I'm not to say it's not the case today, it was very much the intersection of art and science. The Walt Disney Company helped popularize the space program. Walt Disney worked with Werner von Braun and others to popularize the pursuit of space exploration in the 1950s. This is where Tomorrowland came from. And Disney was very much, I think, a company that captured people's imagination. It was an incredibly creative company. It was a company that they took a lot of their profits, they reinvested them, and you see how well that paid off decades later. It's a company that the founder died in 1966, and more than 50 years later, the brand is as relevant as you know it's been in many, many decades. And so we always wanted to have a kind of company that really sat at the intersection of art and science a company that could capture people's imagination a brand that people were emotionally connected to that was resonant and where you know creativity felt like it was unbridled that you can kind of if you could dream it you could create it which was kind of one of the old mantras of Walt Disney and so i think he's been a very big influence for me because there's not you know a ton of role models of people that i would identify as primarily creative people, people that had a background being artists or designers, that really ran companies that became really large and captured people's imaginations. And I think the lessons of Disney are lessons that so many companies can take. The idea of, you know, having courage, taking big creative chances, and just this idea that you can kind of pursue things that feel almost impossible. Walt Disney had a saying, it's kind of fun to do the impossible, and I think that whether it was Disney in the 1950s or 60s, or it was Apple in the 2000s with Steve Jobs, these companies had these golden periods where it just felt like every time they were about to launch something, you know, it felt like a step forward for humanity, and the world turned a little faster. And I think that that was something that was really truly, these two examples are companies that I think really did sit in the intersection of art and science. And I think that is what can really speak to people. And so that's just been an inspiration for us. And so we want to, you know, we want to honor people who've done that and figure out if we can take a page off that playbook as well.
0: Fantastic. Ryan Chesky, thanks so much for being on the Design Better podcast.
2: Well, thank you guys so much.